I think my buddy John was filming this. Uh, Barack and I are just walking down the street in Columbus, Ohio. Just us. There's like no one yeah. around. We're walking, talking for like five blocks. And like that's Barack Obama. Yeah, I know. It's insane. Right? <laughs> this is back to your story. Bad boy. Clap. Oh, yeah. Do the. Wait, hold on. Should I do it one more time? that work good that one now so many times before uh because you have to like sync the audio yeah, with, the, with the, all of that shit right yeah, yeah, yeah so uh we were forgetting to do the clap before and now it's yeah, just kind that's of a, a pain thing. yeah definitely yeah, right absolutely you got it down now a hundred percent how we doing brother i'm good man i'm good i did tweak my back today i was working out this morning and it, like ugh, spasm and that's kind of thing like you don't realize how painful that is yes. and how much you feel your back until you do something like that. It's kind of crazy, man. Your back is is everything. And as you get older, you start to realize uh, shit just kind of breaks down from time to time. Man, what the hell? I know. I know. So I've had like eight ibuprofens, Advils today. So okay. I'm you're, riding high on Advil right now. You're smooth sailing, yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like ibuprofen for me, right? Like uh, dentists can, will give you like Vicodin or Tylenol codeine or mm. whatever. And um, I feel that never helps the pain. It gets you a little loose, right? Right. right. But an ibuprofen for mm. some fucking weird reason, it just kind of numbs out the pain. Yeah, it does. It seems to work, whether it's a headache or a muscle or, yeah. or whatever's going on. It does seem to kind of help for yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. For yeah. sure. So those eight ibuprofen are really kicking in. They're working right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> tweak anything right here. I'm going to keep it stationary. There but we yeah, go. Yeah. What kind of workouts do you do? Uh, You know... Uh, Typical, like I try to get in and get out 60 minutes, you know, there we go. Uh, I try to be as efficient as possible. <laughs> so, you know, back, biceps, chest, yeah. I hate leg day, that kind yes. of stuff, you know, yeah. but like lifting weights, you there know, more than aerobic. I, I do play a lot of basketball though. I yes. love basketball. So that's, that's a, a good work. It's a huge part of your life. It is, but I love right. basketball. Yeah. yeah. Talk, playing it, more so talking about it uh, yes. uh, right now and, and watching it. When you were a kid, was yeah. it, uh, it was a huge part of your life? Yeah, it's always been a huge part of my life. Yeah. I remember just falling in love with the game of basketball. I thought I would be an NBA player yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. I realized probably in ninth grade that that was a far-fetched and unrealistic dream uh, that would not come true. But I feel very lucky that still I've always been passionate about it and I've been able to channel that passion into a lot of what I do in my career now. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about basketball that uh, drives you as an individual? Hmm. Well, I remember first falling in love with basketball. There was a show called uh, NBA Inside Stuff with a modern shot. And it was yeah. like a Saturday morning kid show on NBC. And I loved it because you really got to know who these players were, their personalities off the court. And I really fell in love with the storylines of all that. And like most other sports, basketball players are very accessible, right? They're not wearing a helmet. They're right out there. They just have a jersey on. They can show their personality on the court much more. Fell in love with the storylines, the drama with free agency when a guy would leave and play against their former team, um, rivalries that would brew, things like that. But then the game itself, it's just a, a thing of beauty to me. Um, I, I love certain players, plays, 
the pace of a basketball game um, and and iconic moments. I, I don't know. There's a million reasons why I've always loved the game of basketball, but uh, I, I still do. I'm still could watch NBA League Pass on any night and watch the two worst teams in the NBA yeah. and have a great time. There's yeah. so much talent in the league that I just like enjoy so much. It's it's such a beautiful sport and it's mm-hmm. it's so magnificent to to watch in person, but even on the screen, right? Yeah. Uh, and and I and I do like the pace. Like I'm a I'm a big baseball fan. Yeah. But basketball, the pace of basketball is definitely uh, what what gets it what gets it going, and and I totally respect that. And yeah. just to see some of the things that they do, I remember recently watching um, that and one documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Man, some of those things, those uh, the very, very talented athletes. It is a sad story, but uh, to see, it, obviously, it's different type of basketball, but still very beautiful and poetic at, at yeah, the same time. Yeah, unbelievable what these guys are capable of doing. The yeah. highlights, the ball handling, the high flying above the rim. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. It's some of the best athletes in the world on display. And I've watched tens of thousands of basketball games over the course of my life now, probably, and I'll always see something different. You never know what you're going to see next. There's always something new that's happening. And and I'm always amazed by that. It's like the real drama. That's why I love sports. It's like, screw reality TV. That's kind of fake. This is like the true reality. You don't know what's going to happen. It all lays, you know, comes together before your eyes. From from the 80s, 90s, the 2000s, uh, even the 70s, what is your favorite decade of basketball? Uh, for me, it's probably the 90s because that's when I was a kid growing up. That's when I first fell in love with basketball. I remember yeah. the 92-93 season. Yeah. Shaquille O'Neal was a rookie. Alonzo Mourning was a rookie. Um, I was at an age where I was starting to like go to basketball games and really know and appreciate who the players were, where I was looking up to them like they're my idols. So... The 90s and then from that to the Jordan era, really. I mean, he won, uh, you know, the six championships in that decade. Uh, The NBA and NBC theme song. That is like, I think the greatest sports theme song of all time. I still get uh, goosebumps and and, uh, chills up my spine when I hear that song. It takes me back to a certain place and time. So. Uh, I, I love all eras of basketball, um, but the nineties probably nostalgia mean the most to me. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, when you were speaking that, that was the feeling that I was getting, you know, from that era, um, being so nostalgic, was it something that, um, that, that your family would take you to games? How did you even get into basketball originally? Yeah, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and the Cavs were a pretty good team back then. They might have been able to at least make uh, an NBA Finals, if not for Michael Jordan and running into yes. some of the greatest moments of my, MJ's career. The shot is over Craig Elo and the Cleveland Cavaliers, and just we couldn't get over that hump. But the team was really good, and I remember my dad taking me to games at the Richfield Coliseum. It was weird because... Richfield, where the Cleveland Cavaliers played, was like an hour outside of Cleveland in the middle of nowhere. But it was amazing bonding moments for my dad and I. We'd have to drive for over an hour to get to a game and then in traffic home an hour and a half. And it just felt like, I mean, obviously I was a kid. People weren't on cell phones or social media back then, but it really felt like special time with my dad, but also... Uh, where I could just experience this energy that I've never felt before in an arena, the whole drama we were just talking about. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen in a game, but to feel that and to feel that as a kid and to see these players in real life, 
it was the coolest, best experience ever. And our team being pretty good too with Mark yeah. Price and Brad Doherty, Larry Nance. I was like, I, I just, well, I was addicted. I was hooked and I fell in love with the game back then. I, I remember those moments. That's incredible. Yeah. Is that when you, as a kid, you started playing basketball as well? I did. Yeah. I loved playing basketball. I had a hoop in our backyard, was playing all the time. Uh, played on AU teams growing up, always playing with friends, two on two tournaments, three on three tournaments. And, and I was pretty good. I was a good shooter. I was quick. Uh, and I really, I was, I thought, Oh, maybe, I mean, Dan Marley's one of my favorite players. He's a cool white guy. I could do this. Like I could play in the NBA one day. I thought that it was a possibility. And then when I was in high school, my freshman year of high school, my high school was ranked like third or fourth in the country. Really good. So I was a decent player. I was on traveling teams and stuff like that. But I realized that like I could try out for the team. But if I made it, I would be the 12th guy off the bench who barely ever plays at all. And it's like, what's the point of that? Like, I want to have a good high school experience and have fun and party and try lots of different things. I don't want to devote my life to high school basketball that I'm never going to actually really get in the game because yeah. our school is just too good. So that was, uh, I became the broadcaster for the team. I was the announcer. No, I announced hey. the games, And that was sort of a transition. I still love being around the game in some capacity, but I found a, a different role. Yeah. How did you um, find your way into broadcasting, especially at such a young age? Yeah, really. I, when I was a kid growing up in Cleveland, I was an actor. I was in TV movies, commercials, plays. Wow. I love performing. I always knew that that's I was good at it, but I love doing that. And I also noticed that it was rare that I could do this and and be confident. I remember in like third or fourth grade, the teacher would assign an oral presentation, a project for the class, and everyone's freaking out. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. I can just like wing this. And seeing how nervous everyone was and how at ease and confident I was, I was like, maybe there's something here. This is rare. Not everyone has this feeling. So I started acting and performing and I loved it. But then when I was in high school, uh, I auditioned for a Saturday morning kids show about the Cleveland Browns NFL football team called Browns Blitz. It was on the local NBC affiliate in Ohio. Thousands of kids got picked and I, I auditioned and just a handful got picked as the hosts of the show. And I was one of them. And wow. I got to be on the field for all the games and hanging with the players in the locker room, spending off days with them, doing Madden challenges uh, against these wow. guys and getting to know I'm like a sophomore in high school. And I'm like boys with a bunch of the Cleveland Browns. And for me, that was a transition from acting and playing a role to being myself. And I was like, this is the greatest job in the world. It was just a, a camera and a microphone were my ticket to unlock me to the best experiences and meet the best people and go to the best places. And I was like, this is what I want to do more so than acting. I'd rather be myself and have these amazing adventures. And I did that for two years in high school and decided when looking at colleges to narrow it down by looking at really strong communication schools. And I went to Syracuse University. They got a great broadcast journalism program there and kind of studied how to be uh, a broadcaster or a reporter, an announcer, that sort of thing. And even what I do today, there, there's no, I, I did blaze my own path. There wasn't a class or school for the types of things I'm doing yeah. now, but I learned all the elements of what I needed in my career from both real life experience and the, the schooling, the education that I was able to get. 
What is that like being a 10th grader, getting to hang out with some of the top tier players of the Cleveland Browns and, and just engulfing your entire life, especially for two years. It's just got to be such a surreal experience. It was so cool. I mean, I'm a huge sports fan and here I am with a all access pass and credential on the field for literally the Browns left and became the Baltimore Ravens for their first game ever back in Cleveland in 1999. I'm on the field. I have in my house, there's a panoramic photo of the whole stadium and you can see me because I'm wearing an orange shirt and shorts on the field for that game. And like to be Whoa. 14 or 15 years old doing that, it's uh, it was a dream come true. It was amazing. It was such a cool experience. But I thought it would also, you know, maybe get me a lot of girls in high school. <laughs> real cool. The only problem was it aired at like 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings. Yeah. And I don't know how much you remember about high school. High schoolers are asleep at that time. Yes, of yeah, course. So no one even like cared or knew that I was on TV every week. They slept through it, but it was still an amazing experience. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. What did your family think? What did your pops think about they that? They were super proud, and you know they loved it. I remember. Uh, I still have VHS tapes of them yes. recording all the episodes when they aired, and yeah, they've always encouraged me in anything that I'm passionate about. Uh, and from a young age, I knew that it was performance based whether it was acting or hosting and they've always encouraged that and uh helped me pursue those things that's you know having parents that encourage and and push a child uh to do things that they absolutely love it is very i don't want to say fortunate but there are a lot of parents out there that do want their kids to kind of do their thing right mm-hmm. and so to hear your story about your folks you know really pushing you to do the things that you absolutely love, especially at a young age. Um, I'm, I'm sure looking back at all of it, you realize how amazing that is. Yeah, absolutely. And now I'm a, a dad myself, yes. so I'm going to do the exact same thing with my kid or kids one day. Um, and, and it is so important to just uh, find, I, I think, to find what you're passionate about and pursue that because that yeah. is what is going to energize you and and what you're going to be best at. So whatever that is for my kid, for any kid out there, parents really to uh, nurture that yeah. uh, when that they see that spark in their child to follow that and yes. see where that goes. Yeah, it's, it's so important. It's yeah. so important. Um, I also heard you say that you went to Syracuse and you went to school for broadcast journalism. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. What? What are even classes like that? I, I don't know. Uh-huh. What did they teach you how to speak? And like, Yeah, they do. They really? do. They teach you all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, they teach you the basics of shooting, uh, you know, from uh, filming uh, and the rule of thirds, how yeah. to frame, you know, set a frame to uh, editing. Uh, and we learned uh, first on linear machines, the old school way, just so you understand the basics of editing before uh, graduating to kind of the more modern techniques that yeah. you use digitally um, to sound. You do radio classes, you do reporting classes, the basics of producing, uh, covering stories. It, it, they really, at Syracuse at least, put a lot of emphasis on the news first when I was there. So teaching you how to be a one-man band, to report on a story, go do all the interviewing, the producing, call the right people, shoot it yourself, shoot your stand up, how to speak, what to do, how to deliver it, edit it. Um, But you do all the roles that you'd see on a a news broadcast from the reporter to the weatherman, to the sports guy, to the anchor um, and the producer, the news director behind the scenes. You get a little dabble in all the aspects of putting together a package uh, and how that works. 
And then there's Syracuse in particular, and one of the reasons I was drawn there, they have an insane track record of producing some of the best sports broadcasters in history. Uh, Marv Albert, Bob Costas, Dick Stockton, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, uh, and it goes like on and on and on to today's generation. And you could look it up. There's hundreds, uh, so many big names who've come through Syracuse. So there's a lot of kids who want to go be the next Bob Costas yeah. or Mike Tirico. And there's a lot of sports classes, too, where you learn how to do play by play. You learn sports documentaries. You learn how to do sports features. And I always I, I learned I loved all of it and I took aspects of it. But there for what I wanted to do, there wasn't really a thing. So I would often get in trouble kind of doing my own thing. Like, for example, uh, in one of my classes, I put together a story that was more a comedy video. And it was really funny. It was, you know, uh, Syracuse University, the Newhouse School has produced some of the best broadcasters in history, like some of the names I just mentioned, Marv Albert, Dick Dick Stockton, Mike Tirico, Bob Costas. What is it about Newhouse that produces all of these people? It's because we practice all the time. And then it's me and my friends at the laundromat calling play by play or at the grocery store. Like, oh, you went for the tuna helper. Can you believe you ever seen this? And like (laughs) we turned this in and it was a really funny piece. And our professors was just like, didn't get it. And like, What? what are you like? what are you doing yeah 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 but i just kind of developed my own voice and my own style and i always wanted to be myself and be comedic and high energy and fun someone who enjoys life and enjoys what i do and finds humor in a lot of things and i always try to be entertaining and compelling first and then deliver the message uh you know along with it yeah well it's a lot more entertaining that way yeah yeah i think so i think so do you feel that you know not to put down syracuse or any you know (laughs) school school like that but do you feel like they have like a this is how you do it this is how you have to do it and this 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 and this compared to like you know kind of like what your your parents did like kind of fostering these individuals to find their own you know inner voice if you will it depends on the professor. I had some professors who were definitely like that at Syracuse who were very much like, this is the way it's done and this is how you have to learn it and do it that way. And then there was others who would take chances and do yeah. things their own way. I remember one professor, he was awesome. His name is Richard Dubin. He walked in, he was like, all right, everyone, you all showed up today. You all have an A for the semester. Wow. The only way you can lose that A is if you don't show up to class, you'll get an A. And you, this is about what you learn and what you will take on in life, not what's going to be on the test. And literally, our final exam, it was a big class. It was maybe like 100 people in this class. Wow. Our final exam was a picture of everyone in the class with a blank uh, a name under it. And you had to write in everyone's name. And he just wanted you to network and get to know people. And we learned stuff in the class. Yeah, of course. But it was like, that's not what it's about. And like everyone obsessing over this rat race of like, is this going to be on the test and studying? It's like, no, show up, pay attention. You have an A. And the only test is meet people and connect. And really, that was one of the most valuable things of Syracuse is all these incredible people have come together here. And those relationships fostered amazing friendships and work relationships Years later, when I first moved out to Los Angeles, yeah. that's kind of where you start is who do you know from college who's either you were there with or graduated before. And networking relationship building is one of the most important things in any career. Absolutely. And you learn that uh, in school, too. So, uh, you know, it was all about which professors you had who yeah. would you know, foster uh, different things in you. 
How well did you do on that test? I did pretty well. I'm a people person. I'm yeah. a bit of a, yeah, yeah. I, I'm a natural <laughs> networker. I like uh, meeting people, connecting with people. So uh, I, I got an A in the class. I remember that. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Well, you just showed up. Yeah, that's right. Showed up and I knew some names. Yeah. I love that, man. I love that. That's cool. Um, when they were teaching you guys editing, especially in Syracuse, like yeah. what programs were you using, right? Because people now use like Final Cut, Premiere, yeah, and all these yeah. other ones. Like, and and you went to school in Syracuse. What? Yeah, year? I graduated college in 2006. My okay. freshman year was Carmelo Anthony's freshman year. We won Shit. the national championship. It was like the best timing ever. It was incredible. Ah, that's it was amazing. amazing. It was a good time, especially growing up in Cleveland, where we had never won anything. Mm-hmm. Being a sports fan, I was like, I picked the right school. Let's this go. Was, this was sick. Yeah. Uh, I think we learned on Avid a little bit, but to be honest, I'm very comfortable in front of the camera and on stage in front of tens of thousands of people. I'm ready to go. I'm confident. I am a nervous wreck in the editing room. I hated <laughs> that room. It was awful. And I still, I, I can work with an editor, but that is a skill set. It's probably the most important part of production. It's how it's all comes yes. together, but that does not come naturally to me. It is really, I, I, uh, doubt myself. Uh, I have to double and triple check my work each step along the way. I'm too much of a perfectionist and uh, I'm very slow at it. So that was a, a painful experience, the editing, but it was valuable to learn how to do it yes. because it makes me better at all aspects when I'm on camera, knowing what the editor is going to be looking for and how they're going to cut it together as a producer. Every role does connect and it makes you better knowing what everyone else is going to be doing absolutely production. Yeah. i mean all of the pieces of the puzzle matter like there's yeah. not just one like everyone has their role and it's what makes this amazing final product right For sure um and and that is just it's it's so important to understand that yeah. um so you go through syracuse right um once you're done like you knew that you wanted to obviously continue into the sports world right yeah, I think or, so. Or comedy, maybe. You know, oh, I, okay. I didn't know. I did a lot of comedy stuff in college as well. So uh, I, I knew I was passionate about sports, and maybe that's a lane. But I didn't want to just uh, be a sports reporter in the middle of nowhere. I didn't want to be a play-by-play guy. I kind of wanted to find a role that didn't exist. I wanted to create my own dream job. I remember the day I graduated and my dad said, congrats, now what? And I said that, I said, well, what I want to do hasn't been invented yet. I want to invent my own dream job. And I didn't really know what that meant, but uh, <laughs> you know, it took the pressure off for a little bit and yes. I just kind of blazed my own path and figured it out. So what did you do afterwards? Five days after graduating, I made a documentary film with a buddy of mine from college. I thought it would be a good project to ease my transition into the real world. And I totally tricked myself. I had no idea how much work it would actually be, but I think that was the key to my success was being naive. Had I known how difficult it would be to make a documentary film and get it out there and distributed, I might not have done it. But as I took each challenge and each step, one problem at a time, one day at a time, I was able to put this together. So I shot 250 hours of footage, wow. uh, edited it down to a 90 minute film. I raised a lot of money to make it happen in $1,000 increments all over the country. And, uh, put out a film that got a distribution deal, won a lot of awards at film festivals, and it was an amazing experience uh, right out of college. I think better than going to film school was doing it myself. And the film's called Swing State. It's about Ohio, where I grew up, the role that Ohio plays in presidential elections because it always seems to come down to Ohio. Yeah, and... um, uh, It always does, right? It seems like it, right? Yeah, so... 
Uh, it was a cool, it was a cool project. It came out in uh, 2008. I interviewed uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., John Kerry, uh, Barack Obama before Whoa. he was president. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there, there we go. Swing, Swing state. state. Look Let's at check your producers just know. killing it right now. Ah, There's my trailer up there. There we yeah, go. Yeah, it's a little blurry, but yeah. The different people that I edited. Wow. I see how long ago it was, how blurry it is. Me yeah. on the news <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. I love that. Congratulations on this. So thanks, man. So what gave you the idea to want to do do this? Yeah. Well, one, like I said, was to avoid getting a real job. Yes. Ease the transition out there and like work on a project. But uh, I grew up in a political family. My dad was in politics my whole life. He was the lieutenant governor of Ohio. He was attorney general of Ohio. He ran for governor and lost one of the closest races in the state of Ohio in Ohio history. Uh, Ran for U.S. Senate. Bad time. Um, But it was a unique uh, childhood and way of living for sure. There was a lot of advantages and disadvantages to being in that bubble. So... There was a really big race coming up in Ohio. Uh, the 2000, I was graduating the 2006 Ohio gubernatorial race. Um, and my father was on the ticket as the lieutenant governor with uh, Ted Strickland running for governor, kind of president, vice president, same yeah. you know way. And it, Ohio had been the bellwether. If you win Ohio, you're going to win the presidency. And the argument was that if my dad's a Democrat, if a Democrat wins the Ohio State House in 2006, it'll be much more likely that a Democrat will be will win Ohio and thus win the presidency in 2008 for the presidential election. So it had huge national significance who is going to control the state of Ohio that year. So both parties, everyone was coming into Ohio all the time. And my dad being in the race, I was like, well, I'm going to have unique access to this. And CNN, a lot of people could tell the story of Ohio. It was a nationally nationally significant story, but no one could tell this unique perspective that I had of like at the end of the day, at the coffee table with the family. So it's really an intimate look at my family and what it's like to grow up and live in a political family. Uh, And all those big names that I mentioned, I, I didn't ask them about politics. I asked Barack Obama, what is it like for you and your children and and your wife to be in this bubble and under a microscope and be out there. And uh, that was really interesting, you I know, hearing that. from all these people about the personal side of politics. Did you feel the same way growing up, you know, with your father being mm-hmm. in politics, watching, having to watch every move, not making mistakes, not getting caught smoking weed or whatever yeah, yeah. it is, you know? Uh, it just taught me how to uh, <laughs> not get caught, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah, I just had to be slick. Yes. I just had to learn how to be smart. And yes. that was a good life skill because I was like, I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to do course. what I do. But like, I just can't get in trouble. I can't get caught yeah. doing certain stuff and, you know, being an asshole. So, uh, but uh, trust me, I was still an asshole. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it just taught me some street smarts a little bit, yeah. you know, and I think probably a lot of the reason why I love performing and doing what I do. I grew up going to events since I was a little kid. And if there was 10,000 people there, a thousand people, a hundred people, my mom or dad were the one on stage giving the speech, talking, performing wow. in, in essence, you know, and uh, politics is tough, though. And I think I was I, that's and sort of like the family business, not what I wanted to do, just because 
so much of it is about negative ads. So much of yeah. it's about raising money. I got to see up like all the bad stuff with politics too. Yeah. It's really difficult. But I saw the parts of it that I liked: connecting with people, traveling, campaigning, uh, speaking. You know, uh, touching people in, yeah. in a meaningful way. And I, I recognized in myself that I can do that part of it, and I like doing that. So Definitely. I kind of found my own path through that in a, in a sense. A hundred percent. Was it hard for you as a child seeing like the negative side that was for sure brought upon your father, you know, from the, the other side, right? I'm sure they ran ads and yeah, things of that yeah. nature. It's just gotta be such a, a very strange totally. uh, upbringing. Oh, it was weird. I mean, I'm 14 years old. My dad's running for governor of the state of Ohio and there was campaign ads against him that were literally like a judge had to stop them because they were lies. They were just falsehood, uh, yeah. false, falsehoods. So it just felt like, oh, this like this is on this huge stage. You turn on TV and you see lies about your father that like eventually are stopped, but the damage is done. And it was just like that was brutal. But the hardest thing was uh, election night, 1998. I'm 14 years old. My dad just lost the race for governor. Um, by literally like a percentage point or two, super close. Wow. And I'm 14 and I saw he's been campaigning for two years and how hard we worked and wanted this. And I just, I was pretty broken up about it. And my dad's giving his concession speech on stage. And these are held at like hotel ballrooms, right? Yeah. You know, and there happened to be just a woman who was staying at the hotel. She was not associated with the campaign or the Democratic Party. She was just there and she got sloshed at the bar. She was wasted. And my dad is giving his speech and he's saying, you know, but don't be discouraged. There's so much you can do and that we have to do. You got to keep fighting. And this woman somehow made her way on stage, pushed my dad aside, pushed. And it's like, what the and what the fuck are we doing? And interrupted his speech and went on this tirade and rant. The state troopers, you know, basically uh -huh. the Ohio Secret Service came. But it was a delicate situation. They didn't want to forcibly remove her. And it was it turned into this whole thing. There was an older woman on stage and she fainted and it just turned into like a zoo and chaos. And this ended up being a clip on talk soup and yeah. all these shows. And it was like a laughing stock. And that to me devastated me so much because my dad couldn't even concede with, with class and yeah. dignity, this race that he came so close. It became this, headline in this bit about this stranger this woman we didn't even know and that especially for a 14 year old was yeah. so hard and we went my dad made a joke is that we're going to take a brief intermission and everyone was like oh and we went backstage and i lost it i just bawling crying and there's my dad at kind of the pinnacle of his career the biggest moment well the lowest moment of his career yeah. but what could have been and he's consoling me, his son, yeah. backstage, you know, making me feel better. And then he went back out on stage and conceded. But it was that was uh, that was uh, a big moment in my life that kind of showed the uh, the roller coaster of a life in the spotlight and, and in politics. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Po politics is a weird world. Yeah. And still, your father held, held his head up high, mm -hmm. you know, how to console you. He's a good father. He's a good man. And, yeah. you know, in, in those situations, it, you do learn a lot from it, right? Yeah. You, you yeah. definitely do, right? And life, in life, you don't always win, right? But mm -hmm. it's how you hold your head up and you continue to move forward. 
Yeah. Um, was your father done after that, like politics? -wise? No, so that was in 1998. And then he, I mean, he's done a lot of great work uh, in the community, focused on families and children. And now he's the dean of a law school in Cleveland. Wow. Um, he does great work in, in the state of Ohio and, and in Cleveland, where we're from. But uh, he got out of politics for a while, but then he decided to get back in in that 2006 yeah. when I made the documentary Swing State, uh, who was asked to be on the ticket as the lieutenant governor candidate. Okay. And that kind of got him back in. And he always, he the way I'm passionate about sports, performing, and basketball, he's always had that for politics, for public service. And uh, it was an opportunity that like he was excited to reignite again. And, yeah. and then being on stage with him, and that's kind of how Swing State ends. We flash back to that moment in 1998 because oh. I didn't mention I was 14 years old. I made a documentary. I took a video camera around for the last 30 days of that campaign oh. as a 14 year old to document my experience. So we, in our film swing state, we flash back to a lot of those video moments and me on stage with that woman, uh, running up there. And then the film, you know, spoiler alert ends in 2006 with my dad winning the yes. race and me on our whole family on stage. And it's a nice bookend moment, you know, uh, coming. Yeah. Full I got chills, man. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I want to watch this. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks dude. What, um, when you had the opportunity to speak with Hillary and Bill and, mm -hmm. and Obama, um, President Obama and President Bill Clinton, what, why, what made you take the approach of not asking them, you know, this and this and this question, mm -hmm. like everyone in there, you know, everyone has, you know, time yeah. and time again, but take a different approach. Cause yeah. I, when you said that, um, I was like, that's the way if, if I ever had a chance to sit down and speak with them, that's, yeah. I want to know more about this. We know enough about this. Totally. Well, you know, they've done, how many the hundreds of thousands of interviews yes. over their careers right so they they're so good politicians more than anyone of having canned answers canned responses and i even in the film noticed this we left in where hey what's up i say what's up i put the microphone on them we leave those moments in and you can actually see the transformation from kind of oh catching up saying something putting the lav mic on them yeah. and then like all right It'll be two questions real quick. And then I ask the question and like, and they turn into a different person, give their oh. answers. And then, oh, thanks so much. Sign the release talk. And we keep all that in because you can see these transformations happen. So I wanted to not have canned answers. And I wanted to really connect with people as a human being. And I could do that much more as my speaking from my experience growing up in politics, I can relate to your kids yes. uh, who've grown up in politics. And what is that like for you? And and get a different type of question and different type of answer as a result. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be so surreal to think that two years later, this this man, you know, Barack yeah. Obama, then becomes the president of the United States. Crazy. Crazy. I know. I know. I got to look back through the footage because it's like not only did I interview him a couple of times, I remember just like. I'm walking, I was in Columbus, Ohio, and he gave us a few minutes, and then he had to go somewhere else, and I think my buddy John was filming this, uh, Barack and I are just walking down the street in Columbus, Ohio, just us, there's like no yeah. one around, and we're walking, talking for like five blocks, and like, that's Barack Obama, yeah, know. it's insane, right, <laughs> it's just, just us, casually strolling, you know, he's a senator before he's yes. president, yeah, yeah pretty crazy and it's cool to have all that on on film, film. Yeah. yeah man yeah. not only for you but your your kid or kids yeah. Yeah. right to look back and say, that's damn that's, that's pretty you know? cool that's like that's amazing yeah all right so um you 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 film swing state does mm -hmm. does really well yeah what then happens after that 
So then I work begets work, and that's the story of my career. I was able to parlay that into a job with CBS News as their national youth correspondent for the 2008 presidential election. My film had just come out. It was playing film festivals around the country. I was kind of living out of a suitcase going from uh, a film festival in New Orleans to a film festival in Ohio to one in San Francisco, bouncing around doing that. And I got this job, CBS News, a youth correspondent. I was basically doing kind of, I could be a little more comedic and conversational talking to college students around the country. I did it for cbsnews.com and all online digital stuff. So it could take more chances. And I was at the democratic and then Republican conventions. I was at all of the presidential and vice presidential debates, wow. the inauguration. And that was obviously the year Obama got elected. It was such a historic election. McCain Palin versus uh, yeah. you know, uh, Obama, Biden. On the, uh, Biden on the other side, it was amazing to have a front row seat to that. Wow. So, uh, it was a really cool experience basically touring with my film and CBS at the same time doing all that was amazing. And then after, uh, Obama's inauguration, there wasn't really a logical next step. This youth correspondent role, it was definitely focused on the campaign. Yeah. So it kind of ended and I've always wanted to live in Los Angeles. I have family out here and aunt and uncle and cousins that I would visit as a kid. I love the weather. I love the energy. I love so many people like myself who are just taking chances on themselves, moving out here to pursue a dream, to bet on themselves. I found I could feel the energy when I landed in L.A. of that. And I knew at some point I wanted to try living here. I didn't know if it would be for a year or forever. And now here we are like 12 years later. I'm still living in Los Angeles, you know, uh, doing the thing. I love that, man. Yeah. When you when you first came out here, did you even have a job set up or like? No, I'm lucky that I had relatives so I could stay with them for a couple of months. So I moved in with uh, my aunt and uncle for a few months. And that helped alleviate the pressure of like, all right, I got to like make money ASAP. What I did instead was I made a spreadsheet of the 12 people that I knew in Los Angeles. I met with those 12 people for coffee or for lunch, told them my story, told them what I've done. It helped me that I moved out here with more than just hopes and dreams. I had made a film already. So I had the DVD and that kind of got me recognized that like, oh, he doesn't just like believe and I have high hopes. He can get shit done too. So that helped me stand out. But I told those 12 people my story and I said, I just have one ask. Is there one person that you know that after learning more about me and what I want to do, you think I should meet? And every one of those people said, yeah, there's one or there's two. And they would connect me. And I kept this spreadsheet, very organized, like a dork that I am. (laughs) And those 12 people turned into 24, turned into 48. And within the first six months or so, I had like 500 names on a spreadsheet that I had met with. And it was super organized who I'd met with, when, where, what they said they might, who they might be able to introduce me to or what they might want to do, what date I followed up with them on. Oh, hey, it's been three weeks or it's been two months since I followed up with that person. Let me follow up. And I just did this as if it were my full time job. And soon after that, opportunities started coming my way. Hey, someone needs to is looking for a PA or someone, you know, uh, my friend is looking for this or could you host this red carpet thing? You know, it just came out. And it literally all starts from relationships and networking. And that's kind of how I started my career from scratch when I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, my, 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 how old were you? I was two years out of college, maybe two or three years. 20 out of years college. old, 20, yeah, no, no, like 25, no, 24, maybe. 24, 25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
wow, man. Yeah. I, 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 I look back at myself at 24, 25. I, ugh. Yeah, there's no way. There's just yeah, no yeah, way. There's yeah. no way. There's no way. Yeah. So to hear um, uh, that you created this spreadsheet and then it was just like introduced me and then six months later you have like 500 people. Like mm. that's very inspiring, especially nice. like for younger people listening. Like mm. this go-getter mentality that you have, um, it's 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 beautiful, right? Because um, a, a lot of people tend to kind of like keep themselves back, reserve themselves. But, um, if you have, if you have a plan and most people, as long as you're a good person, yeah. they're willing to introduce you to one person, Yeah, one person. That's totally. it. I mean, that's literally how I started this podcast, right? Yep. I started doing it with friends and then I said, Hey, introduce me, a person. introduce me a person. Yeah. Right. And then it was just kind of. And then I started reaching on Instagram. It was like, and and that's how you grow things, right? Totally. And it's just networking. Yep. Um, but to have that 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 mentality uh, at a young age is very very inspiring. Thanks. Um, so you 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 start doing these little things. When does sports come back into the play of all of this? Yeah, um, I mean, I've always through the through line through everything is I'm always watching sports, following sports, talking about sports, passionate about it, but. You know, I would pursue it if an opportunity came about, but there was never I was also hosting game shows and uh, kids shows and food shows and uh, doing comedy videos and working with brands and a lot of stuff that weren't sports, too. OK, um, but I auditioned for and got uh, my first television show was called Tailgate 48. It was on the Big Ten Network, and I hosted this for two seasons where I went to every Big Ten college campus the weekend of their biggest football game of the year. And if you had 48 hours on campus, I show you where to eat, where to party, where to tailgate, interview players, coaches from all the sports. It's the ultimate food travel show about sports. So Ohio State, Michigan, rivalry weekend, their game's going down. 48 hours before we land, I take you to like the best slice of pizza in Columbus or the best, uh, you know, uh, dive bar or the tailgate scene, all these things. I interview the basketball team and we do different stuff. And then it culminates with being on the field for the game itself. It was like, I'm getting paid to do this. This is insane. I would pay to do this. This is wild. So I did that for two years. And that, I think, I think I got the job because I was just authentic and genuine. I was passionate about sports and that this felt like a dream job. And I hopefully I think that showed on camera too, that I was not jaded. This wasn't just a gig. This was like the dream come true. Uh, And I tried to translate that for the viewers watching at home. Do you remember the moment that you got hired for the job? Yeah, I think I got a a phone call. I remember auditioning. I I was living in LA, but I was back in Cleveland and I called up uh, some guys I'd worked with before, had a production company in Cleveland to help me tape the audition tape or record the audition tape. I I was like, I think I could get this one. And and they helped me. So it looked really good and it was great. I submitted it. And then I got a call uh, from my agent at the time and said, I got it. And it was like, it felt like, you know, the, like a life changing moment and it didn't change my life, but it felt like I've made it, you know, yeah, in course. that moment, that one phone call, like I'm doing it. It was, it really was a, a dream come true. No, I mean, it sounds yeah. like an incredible job. It was really cool. Right? I'm very lucky though, that I've had a lot of dream jobs and dream experiences. I'm a, a very lucky guy in that regard that I've channeled things that I'm passionate about and somehow turned that into a career. Why do you, what do you think that is about you that makes it, um, makes you so unique in in that sense, right? Mm. Is it, 
authenticity? Is it mm. not being afraid? Is it networking? What is it? I think it's a combination of all of that. Yeah, that I've got uh, no fear and no shame. I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to take risks and fail because I, I do often. I've had a lot of close calls and, and bad breaks too, but uh, uh, I, you put yourself out there enough and you're going to get some wins. And yeah, that I'm... Uh, authentic and genuine that I truly care about this. I don't see some of these things as just a job. I yeah. see it as a purpose and what makes me happy and fulfilled. And uh, I'm not jaded. I don't take things for granted. I really appreciate all of these experiences and I'm genuine, but I'm also professional. I'm always on time. I'm a hard worker yeah. and I'm always about just try to get my foot in the door. And then once my foot is in the door, prove that I belong and be the hardest working, the most professional and the best of what I do and uh, to show that that passion. Yeah. Um, you said a key word jaded, right? When yeah. you moved to California, you know, this is something that happens a lot with people getting in the industry. Mm -hmm. Actors, actresses, the, the whole bunch, right? People get jaded. They get, they just kind of get lost in the soup, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you do to keep yourself kind of out of that? I mean, really just be myself, I, just to stay humble and stay grounded. I have a, a poster behind my desk that I look at every day. It says, uh, work hard and be nice to people. Yeah. I really think it just comes down to that. Work hard and be nice to people. That Literally, that spreadsheet that I had you know, of all mm. these people that I met, a lot of the interns and PAs are now showrunners and uh, you know, huge Hollywood stars. You never know who... What anyone's path is going to be, where they're going to end up, what they're going to be doing. Uh, someone that you hire today might be your boss a couple of years from now. And I'm not saying that's the reason why you should be nice to people, but it, that is one of the reasons because everyone is on their own path, their own journey, and just treat everyone with respect. And with that, I think comes not being jaded. You know, if you're just truly respecting everyone that you work with and uh, everything that you're doing and take, not taking the uh, opportunities for granted because you know that in the business that I'm in that they can come and they can go really yeah. quickly. So just to be appreciative when you're in it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Work hard and be nice to people. Be a good person, mm -hmm. right? Like don't be an asshole. Right. It's just like yeah. so many people out there. I don't know why they have this this mentality or this chip on the shoulder, whatever it is. It's just like be a good person. It's just so yeah. freaking easy. And, and it's so stupid. Like I, I know some I've worked with a lot of brands and there's times we've brought in big name actors, actresses, athletes. Yeah. And the ones who were assholes and were, were difficult, they don't get hired again. Yeah. And like a lot of their careers have not gone so well because people have seen that notice that and like we're never hired working with no. this person and why you're they're costing themselves well it's really being an asshole is not a good business model not at all don't no. be a jerk man it's yeah. just like it's so weird right yeah. it doesn't matter if you're an actor actress or you just joe schmo off the street it's just like be a good person don't be a jerk right totally. um <clears throat> yeah so that's crazy yeah but um so you go through that experience you do the two years when you wrapped that up, what what was the next step for you? Um, well, you know, always grinding and hustling. When I first moved to L.A. and I was doing that networking and stuff, I was looking for my first big break. And it came about in kind of an interesting way. I won a contest. Mm -hmm. uh, a buddy of mine sent me an email and said, Gillette, the razor company, is looking for two guys to travel America making comedy videos for them. And I looked it up and I read about it and it sounded incredible. 
but you had to submit a 60 second video that showed your passion for Gillette. And the deadline was the next day and they already had like a thousand entries. But I called up a buddy of mine from college, my friend Adam, and I said, what are you doing today? It was a Tuesday in L.A. And hey, a Tuesday in L.A., uh, most people are like, oh, I'm not doing anything, yeah. you know, an actor. Right. So I was like, all right, well, this sounds crazy, but come over. We're going to make a video. We're going to submit it and we're going to win this contest. He's like, OK. So <laughs> we came up with some ideas. We shot a video. We edited it. We put it up online and we were chosen as one of five finalists in America. We were flown to New York City for this live final event in front of 500 people, a panel of celebrity judges, John Cena, Tony Parker of the Spurs, and Aaron Andrews, the sports reporter. And we did this competition. They showed our video. We had to answer questions. And we won the Gillette <laughs> Ultimate Summer Job, where we were uh, driven around America in a Gillette tour bus. We were in 25 cities over six weeks. We were oh. paid a lot of money. And we were in charge of creating content for the brand, all access at every major summer event, backstage at Lollapalooza, on the field at the Baseball All-Star Game, backstage at the ESPY Awards, Whoa. led the New England Patriots out of the tunnel, did the coin toss at midfield, spent a day in the dugout at Yankee Stadium with Derek Jeter. Uh, every day was like this for six weeks. And they only put us up in like the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons everywhere we went. So when this ended... I was like, shit, I have peaked way too soon. Like, I can't go back to my shitty apartment. What am I going to do? I got to keep this going. So rather than sending these Gillette executives an email begging them to keep working with us, we sent them a video. We just said, watch this. And it was basically, that's how we first won a contest and got recognized. We made another video pitch on why they should keep working with us. Within an hour, we heard back from the vice president of Gillette. He said, we need to talk. And we transitioned from contest winners to their on-camera host and spokesman for the next year and a half at Super Bowls, at uh, MLB All-Star Games, opening day, spring training, uh, NASCAR races. This brand, Gillette, had all this access to amazing athletes and events, but they didn't often know how to amplify that or what to do with it. And we kind of got our foot in the door with a contest and then kicked it down and, and were there for the next two years as... They're hosts, producers, writers, working with the brand. And that kind of jump-started a lot of my career, especially working in branded entertainment because yeah. I call it Conference Call City when you work with a brand because you work with the PR team and the ad agency and the marketing team and all these other companies that I saw as feeder systems for other brands and opportunities. And through that, got a job with Nestle Butterfinger Candy Bar traveling the country, eventually Pizza Hut, uh, Skype, eSurance, all these different companies as their spokesman, and it all started with that one contest. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. That's awesome. It's crazy. You know, uh, I still don't pay for razors. <laughs> I took so many. Let's I got go. a lot of Gillette razors. Yeah. Let's go. You know, your your drive and motivation and and just willingness to continue to push forward is very, very, very inspiring. Thanks. Right? Yeah. Because a lot of people would have maybe just sent them an email, right? Or yep. written them a letter, whatever the heck it is, right? But you're like, no, I'm going to, we're going to create this little video. We're going to show you why we're fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened. And look, a totally. year and a half, you guys are rocking and rolling. Yeah. And then it just spawns all of these other things. Yep. That is awesome, man. Yeah, thanks. What was it after all of those experiences? Because when was this? 
That happened in 2010. 2010. That was kind of my first gig, uh, big gig that I ever had, even before that football show was this Gillette experience. Okay. Yeah. And so then what, so that was before the football experience, right? So this all leads up to the football experience, right? Yeah, it kind of helped me get recognized how I was able to first get an agent, get in the room for more traditional auditions as opposed to hacking the system through contests. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's so cool. Okay. So then you go through all of those experiences, you do the football experience. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? Well, we're skipping over two cool things. All right, no, no, share, go. All right, so, well, Butterfinger. I traveled the country with Nestle Butterfinger candy bars. Similarly, 25 cities in six weeks all across the country. And I would have two days off that would happen to fall each week in whatever random city I was in. So I had two days off one week in Kansas City. And I don't know if you've ever been to Kansas City before. Great barbecue, some of the best in the world. So first day off, I had barbecue, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, trying different places. But the second day off... I'm a diehard, passionate NBA fan, as you know, and the finals were going on about six hours away in Oklahoma City between the Miami Heat and Oklahoma City Thunder. I did not have tickets to the game, but I don't let that stop me. You got to put yourself in the right place at the right time to make something happen. So I'm going to show you a photo here. I drove six hours in this Butterfinger truck. Let's go. Can you airdrop that to him so you can pull it up on the screen? I'll send you, I'll airdrop you a couple things here. Yeah, let's pull it up. All right. But don't, uh, don't, don't reveal them yet. Uh, Let's see. Should just be MacBook Pro. Yep. I got you. Um, It says (laughs) waiting. Well, there it goes. All right. So they're in order. We'll start with the, the truck. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so I'm driving around America in this truck. I drive six hours to Oklahoma City in the Butterfinger truck. Okay. And uh, I get to the arena the day of the game, a few hours before the game. I'm shaking hands. I'm passing out Butterfingers, looking for an extra ticket. Five minutes before the game starts, I meet a girl who has an extra ticket to game two of Let's the NBA go. Finals. I give her 100 bucks for it. That's unheard of. You can't get a regular season ticket for $100. No. I can't believe this. This is amazing. This paid off. I go in. I go to my seat. And here's my seat. I'm in the last row in the entire Let's arena. See. Let's see. Literally, there's no one behind me. Uh, oh, you're pulling it out. There. That, that's <laughs> it. I'm in the last seat in the entire arena. Literally, there's nobody behind me, right? Like, I'm happy to be there, but I'm <laughs> checking my phone to see what the score is. I can't see what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can't sit here the whole game. So I'm looking around. I'm taking pictures. I think I see it's a finals game. It's full. But I think I see one seat in the second row where the announcers sit. So in the second quarter, I get a hot dog and a beer. I'm, you know, can't reach for my ticket. I walk right up to the usher. I see her name tag. Confidence is key. I don't hesitate. I'm like, Yolanda, you look good. Have you lost some weight? Oh my God, I love you. We're gonna win it all. Go Thunder! And I keep going all the way down to my courtside seat. So you'll see Let's my see. courtside seat here. There you go. Oh. Yeah. So now I'm sitting courtside at the NBA Finals for a hundred bucks when. Eight hours ago, I was in Kansas City and barbecue. I can't believe this. I'm having the time of my life. This worked out. This is insane. I'm sitting there having a great time for about 30 minutes, and then someone taps me on my shoulder. Excuse me, you're in my seat. I start, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. There must be a mistake. I start fumbling, looking for my ticket, just trying to buy some time, find another open seat, make a new plan. Yeah. And as I do that, I look. I see about 10 rows up on the aisle. I turn, and I see David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA at the time, getting up to go to the restroom. So I immediately walk to his seat and I sit in the commissioner's seat. (gasps) Sitting next to him 
is Adam Silver, the deputy commissioner of the NBA. And before he has a chance to say anything, I say, Mr. Silver, I'm a huge fan of yours. The second round of the NBA draft is my favorite time of the entire season. The way you pronounce those European draft picks, it boggles my mind. My name is Jason Zone Fisher. I'm a diehard, passionate NBA fan. Uh, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I grew up with the, the Mark Price, Brad Doherty, Larry Nance. I've been passionate about the game since I was a kid. I drove seven hours to, tonight to be here for this game. I'm traveling the country with Butterfinger. Here's some Butterfinger coupons. He was like, what? <laughs> Who are you? What are you talking about? And I took that as an opportunity to tell him more about myself and what I do and what I'm doing. And he was fascinated. I was there about 20 minutes. I thanked him for not calling security on me. I gave him my business card, his reflex. He gave me his card back. Good timing because I leave. And then I passed David Stern in the hallway. I say, Mr. Commissioner, good to see you. I just caught up go. with my old friend, Adam Silver. Uh, tell him Jason Fisher said I. He was like, what are you talking about? Then flash forward a couple weeks later, I was in New York City, uh, I was hosting some events, uh, and I emailed Adam Silver, I reminded him who I was, and I said, at the risk of losing all humility, I know at some point in my career, I'm going to work with you in the NBA. It's a lifelong goal of mine. I feel myself inching closer towards it every day. If you would spend five minutes to sit down and get to know me better, I'd appreciate it, but trust me, it'll be worth your time. I heard back within five minutes. Jason, of course I remember you. I'm still eating Butterfingers because of you. <laughs> I leave for the Olympics soon. It's going to be tough. I'll see if I make some time. I got a calendar invite from his assistant for a meeting from 11 to 11.10 a.m., a 10-minute meeting. I showed up to that meeting. We hit it off. He made a call. He canceled his next meeting. He made another call, eventually brought in the head of marketing, the head of social media for the NBA. It turned into an hour-and-a-half meeting. And about 10 months after that, David Stern announced his retirement. Adam Silver became commissioner of the NBA. And you can see some of those other photos. I've become good friends with Adam. We've gone to games together. I've been his guest at All-Star Weekends. And now I do a ton of work with the NBA. I've hosted four of the last five NBA All-Star Weekends as the official host and MC. I host weekly shows with the league on uh Twitter spaces and their Twitch channel uh, and Instagram live. And I do a lot of work with the NBA now. And it really started, I think, you know, from creating my own luck. And a lot of people I was working would have stayed in Kansas City for a day off. And I could have I could have used the extra sleep. A lot of people, even if they made it to the game, would have stayed in that shitty seat in the nosebleeds. But what's the worst that can happen? And I just, like I said, I have no fear, no shame, a lot of chutzpah, and yeah. been able to create opportunities sometimes out of nothing. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I am speechless right now. <laughs> nice. Gosh, darn it, man. Yeah. Um, that has got to be one of the coolest stories I've heard in a long time. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. And now Adam and I would become friends, and literally I, I saw him this summer. I was... Uh, the NBA hired me to uh, host and cover uh, the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies, and I was at a private reception with Adam, and he's introducing me to people saying, I, I found this guy. I discovered him, <laughs> like claiming me be through this crazy Butterfinger story, which is wild that that was already 10 years ago, yeah. but how far I've come with him and, and with the league, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing, literally out of nothing. You know. When you look back at all of this, what is, how does that make you feel? Uh, I feel proud of where I am right now. The fact that like uh, uh, 12 year old Jason that we were talking about at the beginning of this uh, podcast and this conversation, watching those basketball games with my dad, the fact that I'm now friends with so many of these players, with these legends uh, that I'm working with the NBA, it really is a dream come true. And I'm super proud of it. The, this 
NBA All-Star Weekend last year was in Cleveland yeah. uh, for the 75th anniversary. 25 years prior, it was in Cleveland for the 50th anniversary of the NBA. I was oh, there wow. as a kid in the nosebleed seats with my dad, and that was probably the pinnacle of my life to that point, being yeah. there, experiencing all that. 25 years later, this past February, I was there, but the NBA hired me, and I was hosting the jam session and the fan fest, interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dominique Wilkins, Sean Kemp, Dikembe Mutombo, Evan Mobley, all these players that in the same building where I was as a kid. So I, I, I am proud of myself for yeah. that and, and really appreciative and grateful, too, that I could be there full circle, you know, uh, creating my own path. Uh, something that like, you, you know, I, I made happen. I mean, listening to your, to, to your story up into this point, man, this is exactly what you've done the entire time. Yeah. Thanks. The entire time you have designed your own way through the ups and downs all around mm -hmm. to, to just put yourself out there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and not be afraid, which is so inspiring. Um, for a young individual listening to this, mm -hmm. what type of words would you share with them? Um, if you could look back at your younger self. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, what do you have to lose is kind of the one of the points of that story that I just told. Yeah, just go for it. Put yourself in the right place at the right time. Send that email. Talk to that person. Um, follow up. Be persistent that it's on you. Take control of your own destiny and what it is that you want. Find what you're passionate about. And there is a way to make that happen. There, yeah. there really is. So. Uh, I would say that. And also there's a difference between confidence and cocky. It's a fine line. Yes. Be confident, but don't be cocky. You yeah. have to stay humble. And there's a difference between persistence. I'm very persistent and pushy. Yeah. And you can turn people off. And that's something that you learn over time. And I'm sure there's been times where I've been too persistent and it's I've become pushy and I've turned people off. But I'd rather make that mistake yeah. than be scared and apprehensive and not send the email and not make the phone call, not push. You know, you just over time, you learn where that line is yeah. and how to gauge people and how to uh, how to how hopefully you're you're being perceived on the right side of those lines because there's a difference. But. I'd rather err on the side of a little too pushy than not at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't want to look back when you're 60, 70, 80 years old and have all of these regrets and say, my God, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have tried that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck, what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. Someone's going to say no. Okay. So be it. That's Great. fine. Great. And, and maybe there might be times in your life where you're, you're pushy, but you learn from those mistakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then you just switch it up the next time. Yep. Right. And, and you just have to be able to put yourself out there to be able to get into these experiences, to be able to build your own life. And what I love about your story is that you did not write off of your father's coattails, mm -hmm. right? You built your own destiny. Yeah. You did all of this on your own, yeah, right? Totally. You put yourself out here. You did all of these things. You put yourself in that experience, right? Yeah. That wasn't because of your father. I no, mean, it yeah. was probably from things that you learned as mm -hmm. a kid growing up, 
But it wasn't like your dad introduced you to these people. No, not at all. No, right. Definitely not. That is what's so beautiful about your story. Yeah, right. Is that you. you're writing your own destiny. You're creating your own story. Yeah, absolutely. Fuck yeah, man. Thank Good you. for you. No, and I do think anyone can do it. Yeah, of course, I'm an extrovert. And, uh, you know, yes. confidence comes a little bit more naturally to me putting myself out there. Some people listening to this might be like, I, I could never do that. But there are little tips and tricks you could do. And hopefully they from listening to some of these techniques that I've used, you're able to do that. What do you have to lose? Being organized, Very much spreadsheet, so. persistence, following up, following through on things. I can't tell you how many people I've met uh, who we've exchanged info, business cards, something like that. And I'll never hear from them ever again. They feel like, oh, they did it. But no, you didn't do anything. <laughs> you got to follow up. You got to follow through. Be persistent. Yes. Yeah. yeah and follow be thankful. Be, show a lot of gratitude, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and I, you keep on saying this. Be humble. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I've learned so much from my wife. Right. Mm -hmm. Because maybe sometimes I write on the the side of like, uh, you know, here's confidence and cockiness. Right. Right. And I've I've written that fine line a lot throughout my life. Yeah. Right. Um, where my wife is like she's very reserved. She's very humble. Right. And she's built this fantastic network. She's a union makeup artist working on these amazing shows and doing all these great things. And, and one thing that I admire the hell out of her is her humble, mm -hmm. like her being, her being so humble. Sure. And, um, and, and that's just like a very, very good quality to have. Yeah. Um, so let's get back to your story. Okay. Right. So you got, you do all of these amazing things, right? Um, where does this all lead you? Does this take you up till today or what? No, what? there's even more crazy things. I'll go through some of them yeah. quickly. Uh, Pizza Hut. I was the Pizza Hut All-American. Pizza Hut became the first ever uh, uh, it became the official pizza of the NCAA. So they named me the first ever pizza at all American. They sent me to every single NCAA championship in Jeez. every sport in one year from the final four to the college world series and the college football playoff to fencing, bowling, lacrosse, track and field, swimming and diving, <laughs> uh, lacrosse, 33 sports championships in one year. So that was a crazy, amazing Ooh. bucket list experience as well, getting yeah. to do something like that. Uh, I hosted a show on the Travel Channel called Coaster Quest, uh, showcasing the best roller coasters and amusement parks in America. <laughs> that was another, That's that awesome. was a blast too. Although that one sounds and seems much more fun than it actually was to make because I would have to ride all of these roller coasters before the park is open between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. like six or seven times in a row Ooh. for different angles, GoPro from the ground, you know, as if it's the first time every time. So it's like <laughs> my seventh time in a row riding a roller coaster that goes upside down like eight times in 90 seconds. I'm like, let's do it you know and i meanwhile i'm like kill me now it's 7 a.m you know but uh but still worst ways to make a living it was for a lot sure. of fun it was a lot of fun so again i just like i've had i have fun for a living i feel yeah. so blessed so lucky and um and uh, it, all the stuff that i'm doing now with the nba too is a blast and but all these things in my career i feel like i've been doing for other leagues for other brands for other networks and yeah, I've been having the experiences and building that for myself, but I'm really promoting everyone else's thing. So I've always wanted to start my own thing, to start a podcast like yes. what you're doing. But imposter syndrome comes up over and over. It's like, who cares? Everyone has a podcast. Yeah. Why do I need a podcast? And I always talk myself out of it. And it really took COVID for me to be like, you know what? I've been saying this for years. What if I had started this five, six years ago when I started yeah. having those conversations with myself? 
So COVID was really hard on me because I'm a people person. I like to travel. I like to connect. Uh, I love sports and live events. It all went away. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I started kind of building and shaping a team and what it would look like to start my own podcast. So I just recently launched my own video podcast called In the Zone with Jason Zone Fisher. And we've got... uh, five or six episodes out right now and we're uh releasing a new one every two weeks and it's really fun it's fun to build something for myself you know that uh is ip talking to interesting people similarly this it's a a guest-based show where i bring on different guests and really get to know them it's often very recognizable people people that you've probably heard of before but seeing a side of them you didn't know through playing different games and surprises that uh put them in situations and ask questions that they've never been asked before. So I'm really enjoying it, but it's a slow build. And when I first came in here before we started rolling, I had a lot of questions to ask you about that because it's, uh, I'm proud of the content and the archive that I'm building, but I just hope more people check it out and discover it because there are so many great shows out there like, like this one. Thank you, man. But yeah, yeah, it it just takes time. That's all it does. It just takes time, consistency, right? Uh, and, and just continually building out that content, man. Yeah. I absolutely love the way your studio looks. You oh, guys thanks, built man. that. It looks yeah, awesome. It's the garage. Man. Yeah, that's it looks great, man. Thank you guys you. did a great job, and you, you do have a really good show. Thanks. And so that's just, just stick with it. I mean, just like everything that you've done in your life, man, yep. as long as you take that, uh, everything that you've done and the person that you are, it will be successful. I know for a fact, man, because uh, <laughs> your, your story is awesome. Thank like you. it's, it's so cool and it's yeah. so inspiring and you know, all, all just like younger kids and, 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 and younger adults listening to this, it's just like this, this mentality of just fucking doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't get stuck in your own ways. Put yourself out there. Um, and, and it, it pumped me up. Like nice. I'm, I'm excited. Like, let's go. Yeah. couple more questions and we'll just wrap, we'll, we'll, as we start to wrap this up, right. Yeah. Um, when you leave this earth, when you leave this mm. planet, what do you want people to remember you for? Ooh, that's a deep question and a really good question. I think I want people to remember me for, um, for being someone who, how, you know, I saw a quote today actually by Maya Angelou. It's not, people won't often remember, I'm going to mess up exactly what it was, but it was like, people won't remember exactly what you said or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yes. And I think that's it. It's just like how I made people feel that hopefully, you know, I, I brightened people's lives that, uh, I made them smile. I made them laugh. I made them feel good. Um, I, I made them feel a connection. Um, I hope that that's, you know, the, the legacy that I'm trying to lead is helping, people just to uh, enjoy life and and to appreciate the things that we have that you know everyone has something to be grateful for and hopefully I can bring that out in people even if it's just for a moment absolutely man I mean life is a blink of an eye yeah it's a freaking flash right know, and so um yeah that's that's a fantastic quote right yeah um for for you right the podcast, uh, is, is obviously a huge focus of yours, Mm -hmm. right? Do you have any other like, uh, goals or aspirations for the future? 
Yeah, I've got a lot. You know, part of it is the journey more than the destination. I've had so much fun in my career. I can't wait to see what is next, what adventures lie ahead. But I really do want to, so much of the adventures I've had in my life and my career have taken me all around the country, around the world, and I'm so blessed and grateful for that. But now as I'm in this phase, I'm I'm a dad and, uh, you know, married and we want to expand our family. I want to find adventures that keep me home more often too. Um, Of course, travel will always be a big part of what I do. And I I love that. Uh, I think you learn a lot about yourself when you travel. Uh, It gives you important perspective. But I would love to be hosting my own show, a regular thing based in Los Angeles where I live uh, that, you know, is something that uh, helps people and people resonate and they discover things. And maybe that's in the zone that I just launched or maybe it's something that, hasn't been invented yet that yeah. I'll invent it myself one day. I love that, man. Yeah. I really want to thank you so much for coming on the show to share your story. You've yeah. had, you've had an incredible journey up to this point. And, Thanks man. I, uh, and this is a thing that I keep on saying. I do say it a lot because the people that I bring on this show, they're, they're very inspiring to me. Like, mm-hmm. and, and your story, uh, put a huge smile on my face and there were multiple times I got chills. I was like, this is fucking crazy. Nice. Man. This yeah, is crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe one day you'll write a book. Who knows? Right. I'm thinking about doing yeah. that too. Yeah. That's probably on the bucket list too. I do have a lot of crazy stories before we get out of here. You want one more crazy story? Let's, re- let's go. All right. Do I need to airdrop some photos? Yes, go. I got let's the visual go. Aids. All right. You gotta, you gotta get the order right though. It's very important. So <laughs> don't mess stuff. it up, Tyler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm actually even going to give you my phone so you can see the order. All right. Tyler. There we yeah, go. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Okay, perfect. Tyler. They're all coming your way. And then we will get to the story. Okay. Here you go. All right. Final story, ladies and gentlemen. Let's start there. Okay. All right. So. One last crazy story. I got a lot of them. I'm just giving you a few here. But that summer tour that I was doing for Butterfinger Candy Bars, the one that took me on the you know detour to the NBA Finals game, it ended at Comic-Con in San Diego. And I don't know. I'm sure you've heard of, of course, Comic-Con. Have of you course. been to Comic-Con? I have not, but definitely. It's crazy. Yes. I haven't been in a long time, but it's crazy. Every network and studio and show and movie and star and brand is vying for your attention. It is like, you know, Entertainment overload coming at you, street teams and stunts and parties and experiences everywhere compact into downtown San Diego. And the Butterfinger team, this was our final event, our final thing that we were doing. They said to my buddy Adam and I, this has been a great tour, but we hate Comic-Con and we're (laughs) never coming back here and we want to go out with a bang. In fact, there's some bad blood between Butterfinger and Comic-Con. We want to do a giant fuck you stunt to Comic-Con. I was like, what? Yeah, this is amazing. A company with deep pockets wants to burn some bridges. Let's go. Let's do it. Exactly. So uh, we came up with this idea. Saturday night, the busiest night at Comic-Con, 6.30 p.m., the busiest time. 150,000 people are leaving the convention center all at once on the street where traffic stems right in front. And my buddy Adam and I, we are driving that Butterfinger truck yeah. down the street. He's driving. I'm on the microphone. What's up, nerds? Who wants some Butterfingers? <laughs> I'm throwing out boxes of Butterfingers, attracting a big crowd of people. Everyone's coming around. And we had a remote-controlled smoke machine rigged up inside the hood of the truck. I hit a button, activate it. Smoke starts billowing out of the hood. People are yelling, you're on fire. You're overheating. We stopped the truck. We 
in the middle of the street, we have a fuse that we pull and it stops our truck. It's like, it won't start. So now smoke's coming out, it won't start. We're in the middle of the street. People start beeping, they're getting out of their cars. We've stopped traffic. So my buddy Adam and I, we jump out of the truck. We're wearing our Butterfinger shirts and our limited edition Butterfinger tidy whitey underwear. Go back to the uh, photo before. <laughs> Not that one yet. Go. All right. So no, no, no. no. Yeah. <laughs> no way. All right. Hold on. Hold on. All right, you got to get, it's very important, the timing. All right. Okay, so uh, we we pop the hood. We're wearing our Butterfinger underwear. Now a big crowd of people is coming around. Like, what is going on? We've attracted a crowd of people. A cop runs up. He's having a nervous breakdown. The whole city's backed up. He's like, what are you doing? The whole city's backed up because you move your truck. I was like, it's okay, officer. I got jumper cables in the back. I grabbed the microphone. I got jumper cables in the back. I run to the back of the truck, and I open the two big back doors. But as I do it, we had a ramp rigged up with over 5,000 pounds of Butterfingers. They all come pouring out on top of me into the middle of the street. So now what was once a fully functioning street has turned into this, an all-out Butterfinger block party. No way. There's just thousands of people in the street going crazy. Let's see. What's the next picture? Yep. The next picture you see on the phone. Oh my god, for people listening right now. There it is. There it is. Oh. All right. So there's thousands of people in the street jumping for joy, grabbing as many butterfingers as they can hold. I, I'm on the back of the truck. You can see him in that photo, instigating the whole thing, throwing butterfingers out. So this cop, he's having a nervous breakdown. He doesn't know what to do. Clearly, no cars can go on the street any <laughs> Definitely longer. Not. Right? And the city's backed up. So he grabs me. And he handcuffs me <gasps> in my underwear and drags me down the street. No. So now I am being arrested <laughs> in my Butterfinger underwear. I realize it says Butterfinger on my ass. I see cameramen, uh, you know, so I bend over. I'm showing off the brand. <laughs> He's like, knock it off. He throws me in the cop car. But the crowd is on my side. They're chanting, free Butterfinger <laughs> man, free Butterfinger man. I've just spread crispy, crunchy, peanut buttery deliciousness to the city of San Diego. Everyone's loving it. So I was arrested. I was driven away. I was charged with littering, obstructing the street, and disturbing the peace. But Butterfinger was so happy because hashtag free Butterfinger man was trending on Twitter. And these are press photos that went viral all over the country of the Butterfinger man. Uh, so they got me a Butterfinger lawyer who uh, <laughs> dis- got all the charges dismissed. They paid all the fines. It's off my record. And they brought me to Nestle headquarters a few months later to give a talk on viral marketing because this stunt was such a big success for them. Oh. The uh, getting arrested in my underwear. The uh, Butterfinger man. Go! <laughs> Yeah, Let's yeah, go, yeah. Butterfinger man. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That was a great story. Yeah, I knew you'd like it. I knew you'd like it. I needed to get here at least one more. Let's go out of you. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of my thing when yeah, I get yeah, pumped yeah. up. Yeah, brother. Thank you so much for coming on the yeah, show. Sure. You are an inspiration. I know people are going to absolutely love this episode. Uh, your, your story is absolutely incredible. You've been able to. I've said it many times, but forge your own path. Mm-hmm. Have a have a just. Don't give a fuck and just push forward attitude, but be good, be humble, be mm-hmm. nice, yeah. uh, be on time, uh, which is which is fantastic. The the, the spreadsheet, right? That's <laughs> so cool, man. Yeah, well, cool is the no, right it word, is, it yeah, is yeah, because yeah. look at your life now, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, true. like that's that's where it started, right? That's when true. you come out to L.A., right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 your story 
people can replicate that, yeah, right? Yeah. That are listening to this 100%. Uh, where can people find all your stuff? Uh, follow me on Instagram. It's probably the best place. Jay-Z Fish. J-Z-F. My real middle name is Zone. So uh, I, I use it. Yeah, so J-Z-F-I-S-H. That's the best place to follow me. And then you can check out In the Zone with Jason Zone Fisher on uh, YouTube and Spotify. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. It's been a blast. Ah, for sure. Uh, Don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a comment. Love you, people. Have a good night. Boom! Let's go! Let's go! (laughs) Nice, nice. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Yeah.